Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Paula Hawkins, interviewed live by author NJ Cooper at the 2022 Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion between crime fiction's most celebrated authors. special guest event of this festival and my goodness she is a special guest Paula Hawkins's first crime novel The Girl on the Train changed crime publishing forever but we're not going to talk about that today or not much we're going to talk about her wonderful new novel A Slow Fire Burning and for anybody who hasn't yet read it This wonderful novel is about a group of disparate and damaged people brought together by the murder of a young man on a canal boat on the Regent's Canal in North London. And Paula, I wondered, what is it about Clerkenwell that struck you as the ideal place to set a crime novel? Well, aside from the fact that I live there, um, so I kind of know it and poke around, it's a, it's a great location. It's full of, um, it's got a very dark history. Lots of awful things happened around Harkin. Well, there are plague pits and there are horrible, um, you know, grisly murders and brutal beheadings and things happened all over the place. But it, it, there's an atmosphere to it, I think, because it's, it's, it's a very old part of the city. It's a very um, mixed part of the city in terms of the kinds of people who live there. There's lots of social housing, there's lots of really posh houses and new developments and all sorts. And then you have the, the canal running um, sort of on the northern edge of it with this wonderful, um, all these wonderful houseboats, which to me are just incredibly evocative. And I, they, I, there's, there's something about them that, that compels me. I want to know what's going on inside. Um, so it's it's just one of those little areas, and I'm sure they're they're all over London though. But um, where you can, they just sort of, you you kind of feel that bad things could happen around any around any corner. I know what you mean. When I first moved there 14 years ago, I thought this is scary, <laughs> <laughs> but it's home. It's home. Yeah. Now, one of the aspects of the novel that I particularly admired is that it's a very complicated, multi-layered plot with lots of backstories, and yet it's incredibly easy to read. And that's a very hard thing to achieve. Was it difficult? Yes, it was. <laughs> Thank you very much for saying that, because that's really good to hear, because I do think... I, I'm a huge fan of the origin story. I like... Um, it's always my favourite bit of superhero films and things is actually the origin story. I'm not that interested in the fight at the end. I want to know how they all got to this point. And so while you'll have... There's always something that's happened in the present, which in this case is the murder of this young man on the houseboat, but I also I want to know how everyone got to the point at which they are... Um, in extreme stress or you know under extreme pressure or, and doing these terrible things and hurting each other and that for me involves going backwards so that always does tend to be lots of looking back lots of multiple timelines lots of moving around um, and that's what I find fascinating but as you say that's not necessarily fun for the reader if you don't get it right so it took an enormous amount of fiddling about and making sure that all the pieces fit nicely together and that that sort of took more time than anything else I think it was like putting everything into place and making sure it flowed nicely. 
Well, it, it, it really, really does. Did you have a, a kind of spreadsheet? <laughs> no, there's always a, um, sort of a board with things, you know, cards stuck on it. I think it was cards this time, not post-its. And um, I don't do that at the beginning because I don't really know where everything is at the beginning. About halfway through, I have to sort of organise everything so I can see it. I think there's a point, if any, you know, the writers here will know that you have to sort of visualise it at a certain point so you can see kind of how, how, the, how the shape of it is, is emerging and that's incredibly helpful. There's also, I think it's also, there's quite a lot of just time wasting goes on, just moving things around, making them look good. Um, but yeah, I think everyone will find that at some point, unless you're one of those very meticulous planners from the start, which I'm not. But then you have to sort of marshal all your forces at some point in the middle, I think. And I think a novel feels much more organic if it's written the way you do it, rather than introduce this character here, make sure she's done this by mm. then. And yeah, I can't, I just can't really do that. It, 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 yeah, it takes all the joy out of it for me. I want, I want there to be lots of space for things to develop and, you know, ideas to occur in the middle. One of the other things I like so much about it is the way you make some very difficult characters so likeable. I'm particularly thinking about Laura. Trouble with honesty, trouble with taking things that belong to other people, and yet she is the kindest person. Well, I'm glad you liked her, thank you. Um, I, yes, I think, I think Laura for me is the heart of the novel. Laura is a young woman who has had a difficult start in life. She had an accident which left her with some um, disabilities, one of which is um, a, was a brain injury, so she has disinhibition, she has no filter, she loses her temper quickly, um, and she does, she is also a bit light-fingered, because she's, she struggles to hold down a job, she, she's always short of money, she struggles to hold relationships together. But she is, as you say, also really kind and generous, and she will help anyone if she can. Um, She's just constantly firefighting. She's constantly sort of on, on the back foot, getting herself into trouble, getting herself out of that, getting herself into the next thing. So she, those are the sorts of characters that I find fascinating and that I've, and there's so much scope to do something with a character like that. Somebody who has lots of problems and somebody who can appear a certain way to people um, who might appear difficult or even threatening um, but once you once you get to that backstory, once you get to that origin story, you see her in a completely new light, and that's um, those are the kinds of people that I always find wonderful to write about. There's so much to go through drama apart from anything. And I just have to ask a tiny personal question: Have you ever wanted to stick a fork in some irritating person? <laughs> oh, almost daily. <laughs> <laughs> so you got rid of a fair bit absolutely through Laura. Yeah, they were they were. There were proxy men getting stabbed in the hand there. <laughs> Very satisfying. I kept thinking, as I read the novel, that an alternative title might have been It's Not My Fault. <laughs> they actually all say it. Have you met? Um, That's interesting. Laura says it quite often. Often, yes. I do and know. Miriam also. The whole of Miriam's story, I... I we discuss this and we don't want to give any spoilers because some of you have this huge treat in store reading the novel cold. But Miriam is a, is a crucial part and she also has trauma in her background. She had a best friend at school, much prettier, who when she stole Miriam's boyfriend said, 
he's not interested in you. I asked if he liked you, and he said no. It's not my fault. <laughs> and then much, much later, after a very much more difficult relationship, Miriam thinks it's not my fault he liked Lorraine better. And it's not my fault is also a message of the girl on the train. It wasn't Rachel's fault that she was mm. drinking too much, eating too much, sponging off her friends. Um, I wondered what it is about it's not my fault that interests you so much. Yeah, that is interesting. And I think with Rachel particularly, I, I think her alcoholism completely messed up her sense of guilt and responsibility completely. And the not being able to remember things particularly mm -hmm. messed up that sense of, of what you should be taking responsibility for. Because if you can't remember doing it, you can't remember wanting to do it, that is you know, there's a sort of a, an essential link broken. So you don't feel as though things are your fault, even though they are. There is, a, yes, there is in all these characters a failure to take responsibility for things. However, there is, there are, or there is context to everything. Miriam's slightly, that's a slightly different one. I think in Laura's case, she literally cannot because of, of, of her injury, necessarily regulate her behavior. So she's constantly saying this because she's constantly trying to tell everyone, I didn't mean it. Um, but, and so there I was trying to convey this, this gap in, in how people judge her and how she feels herself. She feels that the world is unfair to her. And because partly it is, having said that, you still have to take some responsibility. And I should think that's what lots of people feel like all the time. That, oh, well, I didn't really mean it to, to turn out this way, or that's not what I intended, but you still have to take responsibility for it. Um, I think those gaps are quite interesting, aren't they? What, what people feel they are responsible for and what they are actually responsible for or what they believe they deserve judgment for or even punishment for. And a lot of what this book is about is, I think, appropriate justice. What do we think people deserve? Do people get what, does anyone get what they deserve? What, sh you know, if you do something bad, because of something bad has happened to you, should your punishment be less than someone who just does something bad? There's all those like, interesting questions that you can get into. But I hadn't realized that everybody um, says it's not their fault. But that's an interesting spot. <laughs> Pretty much every single character. something I was discussing I mean, in A Slow Fire Burning, you have Theo Myerson, the novelist, who um, is writing a pseudonymous crime novel about layers of guilt and responsibility, which is a bit ironic given his own guilt and responsibility for using Miriam's story, stealing Miriam's story. And so I wondered, actually, on questions of responsibility, where do you think a writer's responsibility lies for what she uses in her fiction? I think it's a really difficult question, and I think every writer will draw a different line. I think Theo Myerson, in my opinion, has stepped way, way, way over any line I would draw. But, uh, so what Theo does is he takes somebody's story and, you, and sort of he thinks what he transforms it into his experimental crime novel. Um, but this, he's actually taking something that's been written down. Um, most of us will happily steal things that have been told to us, you know, not, and I don't mean, I don't mean like people's novel ideas, I mean, you know, oh, this thing happened when I was a child, or, you know, I had this encounter yesterday, or whatever, and those of us who think like that will go, oh yeah, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Or, 
the thing that happens to me all the time is you read something in the newspaper and you're like, oh, I wonder how, you know, what, what happened after that, or I wonder how they got to that point. And so we're constantly taking things. But yes, I think there is, there are all sorts of levels of responsibility um, about how you tell stories. And if you are using somebody else's story, if you are borrowing from life, then you have to think about the way that you transform that. And I would hate, for example, for anyone to ever be able to actually recognize themselves, think, oh, they got that from me. Because, well, I think that I, that would feel intrusive to me. But there are plenty of writers, you know, Philip Roth, Truman Capote, lots of people who would happily just plonk people straight from life into their books and thought there was nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, somebody, I'm going to steal from somebody now, and I can't remember her name, which is very convenient, but there was a writer who wrote about this, and she said, she had this great line about how characters sort of wash up on your floors like dead bodies, and it's up to the author to breathe life into them, and in that way, you transform them, and you make them someone new, and that's hopefully what I would like to do. I don't, you don't, you know, I don't want things to be obviously stolen, obviously taken from somebody, or obviously just plopped into your novel. I do think that you have to do your transformation work so that it becomes something completely different. And I certainly don't think that you should yet be nicking other people's actual books. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's legal aspects to that. Although, well, interestingly, um, I did discuss this with my um, my publishing you know, fraternity, my, uh, my editors and agents and whatnot. What Leo did would probably not be actionable. Wouldn't it? No, he would. I think. I, anyway, we talked about it, but yeah, he probably could have got away with that unless he used her actual it, phrases. Her actual phrases and enough of it, yes. because there isn't copyright in an idea. Yeah, that's true. Mm. <laughs> well, but that's it, this is certainly immoral. Certainly immoral. What he does. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I wanted to get on to something else about Theo. Theo's agent tells him that women buy crime fiction because they enjoy the catharsis of victim. <laughs> now, I just wondered, did somebody say this to you? I couldn't possibly comment. No, I think it's something that has been said. It has been suggested mm -hmm. that this is why women like crime. That perhaps there are occasional women who do. I think there are, it's, it's a question that comes up often, isn't it? Why do women like crime? I mean, lots of people like crime, but women particularly tend to read crime. I mean, women particularly read fiction, don't they? But um, And so, and, and why is it? And I think I, do, I, I don't have a short answer for that. But, but Theo has lots of, you know, ideas about, about crime fiction and about women indeed. Um, but it's, I, I, part of what this book is about is about reading crime and writing crime and our enjoyment of it and how you should tell a, a, a crime, how you should write about crime, how we should, how we should think about it. So it, this was just one idea being thrown out. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think I've, I have certainly heard it somewhere. Um, and it, I was thinking about it. Why, why is it that I always want to return to these dark stories? Why is it so many of us are, want to go into these really dark stories? And, I'm, and I don't really have a, have a straight answer. I just know that it's the kind of thing that I'm com compelled by and I want to work through these things. And for me, the, the interest comes in the understanding of, of or the attempt to understand how people might get to these points and, and the effect that it might have on them afterwards. And the, you know, the imagined situations the imagined psychology of people who get to those points. And there perhaps is a way of, you know, fig it's just a, a figuring things out. Perhaps a what if. Yeah, a what if thing. Um, 
for lots of people, the enjoyment is the mystery. It's the, it's the actual the fun of figuring out who's done it. There's, there is just a pure entertainment in that. Um, there are lots of crime fictions that crime, crime novels that have interesting social commentary in them, aren't there? There's, there's, I mean, I think there are all sorts of reasons. And perhaps some people enjoy the class of it when it's ludicrous, but I think I'm pretty sure it's been said. <laughs> well, I was interested in Camilla Long's um, idea about all this in, in last weekend's Sunday Times. She was, in fact, talking about women's liking for true crime rather than fiction. Mm. And she says, the reasons this have been given that it's educational, that it helps women explore their own vulnerability, but she believes, and this is a direct quotation, that women secretly enjoy watching the competition being annihilated. <laughs> right. Do you think that's true? No, I really don't. Good God. I, how many of you think that's true? <laughs> I mean, you, do women really, I mean really, do women go around looking at each other as competition? I just don't, anyway. I do think that there is a particular way in which women, and it may have changed, but certainly when I was young and when I was a teenager and in my 20s, women are taught to see themselves in that victim role quite a lot because you're constantly told, don't wear a short skirt, don't drink too much, don't wear high heels, don't get in a minicab, don't do this. All the things you are supposed to do in order to avoid yourself being a victim of crime. Men, young men are far more likely to be victims of crime than women are, but we don't spend our lives, well, as far as I know, telling young men, you must do this, you mustn't do that, don't go to the pub, don't drink too much, don't dress a certain way, don't smile at people, whatever, whatever, whatever. So I think there is a sense in which we, if you have taken on kind of that, that imagining yourself in that role, then reading crime fiction is, is certainly interesting in a different sort of way. Um, than it would be if you don't see yourself as a victim, if you are constantly putting yourself in that, in that position. And hopefully, I think that is probably changing now, but I could be wrong. I hope it is. Yeah. It, I mean, because I don't think it's helpful to anyone particularly to, to talk about it that way. I, I do remember years ago um, a writer objecting to the fact that her publishers had put a dead woman on the cover when the book was all about dead young men. And her publisher said, dead men don't sell books. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it, but it isn't it, that's also an interesting question that, you know, your, the, the, the trope is of the beautiful naked dead woman at the beginning of the, of the book or the movie or whatever. Um, and that, that is now seen as terrible and beyond the pale. And, but how about if you open it with a beautiful naked dead man? Is that okay? I mean, what, what is that? What are we saying? Did you deliberately choose a male victim? I mean, he, this, that was the story. It was, it was always going to be him. It was, that was just the story as it came up in my head. But yes, it worked nicely for me because I was, I was thinking about those issues and I didn't want to have a beautiful naked dead girl. Um, or any kind of naked dead girl. That You've got enough suffering women in this book. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Everyone has a terrible time anyway. So. <laughs> I see a bit of a link between the tremendous success of The Girl on the Train and the great popularity of some confessional journalism about, I know I drank too much, I know I left my knickers all over London, I know I eat too much. Is part of the appeal 
well, I know I'm awful, but I'm not as awful as that. Um, um, it, it might, yes, it may well be, actually. Um, I don't think I thought about it in that way when I was writing it. For me, there was very much, it, it began with the blackouts and the, that memory loss and that idea of how terrifying it is to not know what you did last night mm. and to not be able to account for it for, in some people's case, hours. I think every, well, not everyone, but a lot of people have had the experience of can't quite remember the taxi journey home. That really awful feeling of like, oh, that's that's not good if I can't remember getting in the cab or, you know, I don't actually remember the journey. Um, but, they, you know, you expand that to people who, are, who lose sort of hours of their... And that, that is just such a terrible... So that's where it started for me. So it wasn't so much that confessional thing. But I, I take it... I take your point that you can read these things and think, oh, well, at least I'm, you know, I've never got myself into that kind of situation. Um, so, yes, there may be a small element. That, that may be, have been one of the things that people mm. enjoyed about it. There were lots of things, you know, the whole voyeuristic thing that everybody does, that, you know, looking at people from the train, and uh, looking at houses from the train. So there were lots of things that tapped into it um, that people related to. But, yes, you're, you're probably right that that might have been one of them. And it also had this great message that so many novelists who came after The Girl on the Train have also put into their book, Am I Mad or Is My Husband a Psychopath? <laughs> Which suggests a colossal amount of connubial distress, or what we call connubial blisters in my house. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I was fortunate in a lot of ways and one of the one of the of the zeitgeisty things I tapped into was this kind of realization that that um, you know domestic abuse isn't always about a woman of a black eye and that there is more to it and that's that sort of emotional man manipulation that he does um, yes lots of the people have have written about and I think actually it's probably most famous for an archer's story from an archer's storyline which I don't I've listened to the archers but I know that that became a very big thing that idea of coercive control it's been in the news a lot um since but and again it was very particular in the girl on the train because one of the reasons he was able to do it to her was because she couldn't trust herself that you came remember. it almost yes. came from her and I'm not blaming her but I, if you have that you have certain people who will spot a weakness in someone and know exactly how to exploit it. And that is absolutely what that man was like. He was a he was um, textbook psychopath in that way, that he could spot your weakness and press on that bruise. And so he knew exactly how to manipulate her. And it, again, that, that comes from that memory loss and not being able to trust yourself. That's a horrible situation to put yourself into. As you talked, I kept thinking, of course, a novelist would be the ideal person because spotting character flaws and weaknesses yeah. is a crucial part of what a novelist does. Exactly. So be very wary. Be <laughs> very, very wary. <laughs> Reverting to a moment, for a moment, to questions of responsibility in a slow fire burning, Theo Myerson has a very intrusive fan who keeps getting in contact and demanding replies. Mm. There is, of course, in the novel, much more about this fan than just that. But again, on questions of responsibility, I wonder what, what you feel about the idea of a novelist's responsibility for her readers' reactions. Um, 
Well, I'm not sure you can be responsible for their reactions. Um, the, the responsibility, I don't know actually what, what I think about in terms of responsibility to the readers. There are certain, if you think about as a crime novelist, um, if you're presenting your book as a crime novel, you will, your readers will come to your novel with certain expectations and I think it's only fair to meet those expectations um, not perhaps every single one, but you know, you you will fit in with conventions. Yeah, give them a body, um, solve a mystery, if not every single mystery, because I don't like to tie things up in a neat bow. And some people find that frustrating, but there you go. There's lots of uh, of, of other other grown novels that are available. Um, <laughs> but I mean, people people react to all sorts of things, and people get angry about all sorts of things that you. Well, you know, you can't, you can't, I'm not sure you can really be responsible for that or control that or even seek to mitigate that because that, 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 that's one of the wonders of, of, of reading literature is that we all kind of read a different book because we all read the book that speaks to us. And people, for example, will get incredibly angry about um, violence against animals where they're quite happy to overlook the violence against everything, you know, the... the small child on the book or what have you, you know, this, that people, you can't control what people are going to, swearing, some people really don't like swearing, you know, um, as though that were the, the, the worst flaw. Um, I also think that there is a sometimes a way in which readers can imagine that you, that you condone the, um, you know, the opinions of the people that you write about, and, you know, I really don't. 99% of the time, I do not condone their opinions. Um, so there, are, you know, people can take things all sorts of ways. You can't. There's, there's only so much. If if you thought about that too much, you would never write anything. I think. Well, I I feel this slightly with the current. To call it a fashion is perhaps a bit rude, but nonetheless, the the habit of people taking offence as though they really enjoy taking offence. And I, I wonder, I mean, as far as I could see, there was not a single offensive thing in your novel. But do you worry about that aspect of it? I do, I do. And I actually um, asked, uh, I actually gave this book to a sensitivity reader um, with a very specific, um, a sensitivity reader is so, so someone who will read your novel and see if you've done, an, if, you, if there's anything offensive in it, but not not across the board. I was, because I had written about someone with a disability and I don't suffer from that disability and never have, I was just, I just wanted to make absolutely sure that I hadn't really like put my foot in it in a way that none of, that me, my agent, my editor, none of us would have spotted because none of us have suffered from that. And it was fine. They had, they had said a couple of things. I disagreed with some, agreed with others. Um, but some authors are vehemently opposed to the use of sensitivity readers at all. They feel that they, you know, they shouldn't have a role in, in this kind of thing. I was quite happy to do it because it made me. I just wanted to check, you know. I just wanted to make sure that I hadn't done something stupid. So yes, I do think about it. But again, it, it can be, you know, that I can see how if you worry about that too much, you're going to find yourself in a very sort of tight spot where. You don't have much space to write, so yeah, that should be fine. No, I, I, I rather agree, and I was reading an account somewhere of a novelist who'd had two separate sensitivity readers mm. who took completely opposite Absolutely. opinions. Yeah. 
Oh no, I had two and they didn't always agree, but that's fine. Then you read them and you think, okay, well, that's okay then. I, I'm, you know, I'm more on this person's side. Or my, I don't think when, you know, you don't have to slavishly follow those things. And if people disagree completely, well, then that's just evidence, isn't it, that people disagree on this. So there's not, they're not going to all, if they were all both pointed to go like, oh, you know, you said this and that's really not a great thing to say, then you would know, okay, yes. Yes. I've really, you know, I've made a mistake here. And just as you talked, I was thinking of, of Miriam and Lorraine. Yes. Did you feel the need to talk to anybody who'd been through the sort of things Miriam had? No, you see, that, so there's a, yeah, why one thing and not the other. Um, I didn't. Uh, obviously, it's something I've read about. It's, um, I, I'm not sure that you could find a sense. Well, I'm not sure there are sensitive gene readers for those sort of experiences no, that she I, went through. I just Usually it's, a, yeah, a so, no, 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 it would just have been reading accounts. Um, I mean, it came over extremely convincing yeah. to me, but I have never... But, you know, no, most, no, most of it is, you know, pure imagination, mm -hmm. but, yeah. Again, on questions of responsibility, somebody who also says it's not my fault is Laura's mother. And as I read the novel, I thought, <clears throat> for every single character except for Laura's mother, you suggest it truly wasn't that character's yes. fault. Do you think if you had gone yet further back into her backstory, you would have found a reason <laughs> to excuse her too? Uh, well, that is a very interesting question, and I haven't, I don't have, I guess, an origin story for Laura's mother. That would be going back even further. So Laura's, Laura's mother is, let's put it, she's not a very good mother. Um, she's selfish. She's very selfish. She's selfish in a way that some people are when they, there's a particular selfishness, I think, of people who've who have fallen madly in love, and that's the most important thing in the world. Is that is that is those you know that love affair and the way they feel about each other, and no one's ever felt love like you know everyone's had that or met people like that. Um, but yeah, maybe you know that you're quite you're you're quite right, and perhaps there was some something, and there probably was something in Laura's mother's past that led her to, to behave this way. But or yes, indeed in her marriage. Indeed. So, yeah, not everyone gets treated fairly. <laughs> one, of the, the, one of the saddest things in a book full of sad things is Laura as a child trying to make sure her mother's all right, mm. and her mother saying, will you leave me alone? And it was just agony. Yeah, and I... I think, I th I, well, obviously I'm not a mother, but I can imagine how how difficult that is. Okay, Laura's mother, as you've said, is not a role model, but how difficult that is for a, a child to be constantly there and constantly wanting your attention and constantly needing you to give them something, and how sometimes you must just be like, oh... This, this is me, the, maybe the non-mother talking here, that I, it would, I'm sure it would drive me absolutely bonkers. But then, and I'm sure it does drive some mothers bonkers, but the good mothers will find some way to not just go, oh, go away, um, to, you know, to, to do whatever mothers do. But, um, and, uh, but I, could, I could imagine that point of having a, of a, of what seems like a needy child, actually what Laura's trying to do is make her mum smile, because she can see her mum is unhappy. But she hasn't figured out yet what it is, and they they wouldn't have been 
is that something she could have done? But she's trying very hard. No, it is sad, but I think, that, yeah, that, that happens, doesn't it? And so do you think in some way Laura's extreme kindness to her elderly friend is searching for the good mother? Yeah, I think, well, certainly searching for some sort of family, for a family, for a replacement family, for the family she doesn't really have. So she's trying to choose her family, and she's found a, um, yeah, an, a, a friend, an older lady who she helps out of it, and they, they have this, this lovely connection. But yes, there's certainly an idea, uh, I think, from Laura's point of view, a, 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 a sort of substitute maternal figure there. And from Irene's point of view, Irene is the older lady who hasn't had children, maybe a substitute, somebody to look after, which she's, she's missed. Yes, like you, I don't have children, but I've seen friends with toddlers clinging to their legs so they can't even have a pee. So I, 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 I know what, what, what you're doing. Um, before we get to the point of opening the floor to you, I, I wanted to ask you, without spoilers, if this is possible, at the end, Theo and Miriam take action. Yes. Do you think, on questions of justice, that what they do is right? Well, I mean, almost certainly not. I can see how tempting it would be. You would probably be better off going through more official channels. Um, but I can fully... Im embraced sentiment behind it, I suppose. I can see how how much you would want to do that. But no, I, I can't condone that. There you go. <laughs> You'll see when you get <laughs> I I kept thinking as I read it that in a way you are fighting the blamers on behalf of the blamed. And I wonder if that rings any bells. Not as far as those two go, but just in general. Yeah, I think I think that is something I try to do all the time. Um, and I, I think a lot of, of what I write about is about judgment and how people are judged and how people are condemned sometimes, um, sometimes unfairly, sometimes just too much. And trying to understand, you know, where the trying to understand how people, how the, the blamed get into that situation. Um, and trying to look at things to some degree from their perspective, even if that is quite a difficult and quite a, not necessarily a very nice perspective. But one, I, I always think it's a bit there before the grace of God, though, that, that, that lots of us under different circumstances might have ended up in a, in, a, in a much darker place. Which leads me to another question. What are your worst nightmares? What frightens you? Oh, Lord. Um, what frightens me? I am. I, don't, I, don't, I think I don't. I don't really have rational fears. I have silly, irrational fears that I've always like longed to have some a house sort of out in the countryside, in the middle of nowhere, you know, by the sea or what have you. Whenever I stay in a place like that, I'm absolutely terrified all the time, <laughs> and I cannot sleep. Of because I hear creaking and, and you know, I'm literally, am I imagining axe murderers? I don't know, but I just, I hear things and then I'm, so I guess it is 
yes, of somebody break. And it's not a really a real fear. It's a fear that is completely <coughs> trans uh, transmitted to me by the horror films I watched as a teenager. I blame my best friend for this, who was obsessed with horror movies. I mean, watched them all the time. And it's this awful thing that's now in your psyche that, you know, you can just imagine the terrible things playing out, and they they often tend to be in house when or can you hear scream blah blah blah. The in cold blood thing actually is that in cold blood scenario of being somewhere where bad people come to the house and do things. That's probably my worst fear, and I know it's totally ludicrous, but it, it's in there somehow. And it's not your fault. It's your totally not. It's, it's your oh best. God, that's it's your best friend's fault. That's going to be on my way you Do you yourself read crime fiction as well as watching horror films? I do. Uh, um, I do not. I don't read sort of vast amounts of it, and not when I'm writing, because I don't think I don't want to read a lot of crime when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. I might read sort of older. Uh, you know, classics and things, but of Highsmith or P.D. James or what have you. Um, but I don't, you don't want to feel yourself being, yeah, infected by people's plots and voices and things, and you don't want to feel like you're too much. I think also you start, you start worrying, thinking, oh God, they've, they've already written my book, haven't they? Um, so I think it's better to, to cut yourself off from that. But um, yeah, I do, I do dip in and out. And, and which writers, you mentioned Highsmith and P.D. James, which others speak to you? I really love um, Tana French is a, is a favourite. Lisa Jewell is just always, I just, she's always so enjoyable and so clever. I really enjoyed um, The Family Remains, which I've read recently. I've just started the new Val McDermott, which I have in proof for 1989. Um, I so much too young to remember that. I'm no, not. And <laughs> <laughs> um, I can remember. It's seventy nine. I don't more recall with, but um, thank you. Um, yeah. So um, I mean, I tend to like this. I I do tend to like the more sort of psychologically driven stuff rather than the more straight procedural. But then you know, I've just mentioned Tana French. She's procedural, and I love her. It tends to be very character driven, though, the mm -hmm. things that I like. Um, so. Yeah, and then one other sort of question. Before you turned to crime, mm. you were writing pseudonymous relationship novels, yes. I gather, yes. um, described as romance, I think. Romantic comedies, I think. Romantic comedies. is actually what they were described as, yeah. Do you think that the reason that the crime became intergalactically successful as opposed to the romance is that you're more interested in the dark side of people? Oh yes, undoubtedly. I was I was not uh, a um, born romantic comedy writer. Not being romantic or funny was a bit of a drawback. <laughs> so, but but anyway, I I have always I've never that that came about in a slightly weird way. I was commissioned to do the the first, and then I carried on. I, that wouldn't have been my natural bent. I, I you know I even if I don't always read crime, I tend to read things that are more. They always have tragedy in them. They always, those are the things I'm drawn to. I like war, you know, war novels, that kind of thing. So, I'm always much more interested in darker stories, the darker fairy tales, you know, all the really horrible things that happen, you know, in, in children's stories. I always love that kind of stuff. So no bluebirds over the white cliffs. No, <laughs> really no. not. <laughs> <laughs> on which note, ladies and gentlemen, we have come absolutely bang on 
to the time for you. There are roving mics, and so if you put up your hand, somebody will bring a microphone and you can ask a question. I'm looking... Oh, we have some. Good. Hiya. Um, question for both of you, really. What, what do you think is the most frustrating thing about writing a novel? Oh, the most frustrating thing. I mean, there are so many frustrating I always have... There's always a bit in the middle, I think, if you get... <laughs> um, where the first... For me, it's always the first 30,000 words. It's going well. I know what I'm doing. It's fantastic. And then you hit that point, and then you're like, oh. And then you're sort of... You're too far into it to abandon it, but you're stuck, and you don't know where to go. And that's always a really dark, dark period for me. Um, there's a lot of sitting at the desk and wailing and gnashing of teeth. How about you? It's, it's the bit that Laura Wilson describes as being like a boarding house mattress. It goes sagging. <laughs> I think definitely that, but the worst, worst, most frustrating bit for me was when halfway through the novel I realised that the murderer was much too wet to have killed anybody. So I had to go back to the beginning and redo the plot so that his nephew was the killer. That, that took so much work, yeah. taking a brick out here, oh, and then, yeah. you know, awful, awful. <laughs> Somebody else. When you were talking about how women like uh, crime fiction particularly, do you think it's less about catharsis of victimhood and maybe more about retribution and justice served for those who feel that real life doesn't offer it. It gets tied up more neatly when the, the bad guys get caught and done for fictionally. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's an element of that. I think that there's a, certainly um, a lot of people come to crime to see um, yeah, good triumph over evil, see the bad guy punished, because, as you say, so often in real life that doesn't actually happen, um, which is something I was writing about in this, but that in this, in this novel. is like, So who gets what they deserve? Does anyone actually end up getting what they deserve? Um, because particularly if you look at the court system at the moment, it's, you know, it seems that it's, that hardly ever happens, that people genuinely get punished appropriately. So yes, certainly I think there is an element of that to, sit to, to at least see that the bad guy gets done at the end. So long as he really is a bad guy, and it wasn't his fault. <laughs> I think there was a question somewhere here in the, in the, in the front. Mike is coming. Um, I've uh, raised two boys to adulthood, and we've had that discussion that you were talking about that um, young men are more likely to be victims of violent crime, they're more likely to commit suicide, and so on and so forth. Um, so I was really interested that you chose a young man as the victim, but why do you think dead men don't sell books? I mean, at a very crass, horrible, outdated level, it's, not, it's just not as sexy, and we are used to seeing. There's something about the beautiful naked dead girl that's the puzzle to be solved and it's shocking and I think it's, you see I always think novelists get a much harder time than people who make TV because you see even good TV, TV that is loved and rated and respected and I'm thinking of the, the drama with Kate Winslet which I really like, Mayor of 
with these times. That opened with a beautiful naked dead girl. It did, and there was no reason for that girl to be naked. They never even explained why she was naked, I don't think. Things like the killing, which I loved, the Scandi, the Scandi drama, that opened with a terrified, brutalized, scantily clad woman, a teenager in fact, running from a predator in the woods. It's the, the most awful cliche, and yet that, that was lauded and everybody loved it, and for good reason, there were loads of good things about it. But yeah, there's something, yeah. I, I actually can't put my finger on it exactly, but I do think there's something like it, the, the, the sexy, beautiful girl is, you know, something terrible is happening to her. That sells. Why does that sell? It's interesting, isn't it? As, as you were talking, and I quite agree, I was thinking of that painting of St. Sebastian, draped rather elegantly with the arrows. It hasn't always been so, has it? I wonder hey. what the difference is. I, I do think that partly one of the things might be that the, the kinds of crime that happen to young men, the, the kinds of ways in which men suffer violent crime, a lot of it is a fight outside a pub. It's a sense of stabbing. They're not interesting in inverted commas crimes, are they? They're not the kind of... I mean, I'm sure they actually are if you delved into the, the backgrounds of all these people, but they don't have that kind of wow factor that, that getting stalked by a serial killer might have. And if the CCTV is perfectly clear, and, and yes, less very crowd, yes. yeah. who knew? Yeah. It's less, it seems somehow less intriguing, but actually if you, if you like, then, I mean, a good crime novelist could take that crowd apart and find, you know, where all those people came from and how they, you could still do something brilliant with it. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't, but someone could. <laughs> <laughs> Next one. We've got one there in orange. I follow with the importance of backstories in your work. Which is the hardest one you've had to write and why? Oh, um, that's a good question. Uh, but because I've had some really nasty ones, um, I think M Megan and the girl on the train had a really terrible backstory. Um, in this novel, Carla, again, I'm not going to explain it all because pe people might want to discover it for themselves but there is a, a tragedy that is very difficult it's one of those tragedies that I, I imagine it would be very difficult to ever recover from that you would never quite be able to get over and writing the, those the scenes in which those terrible things happened those yeah I, I do find those really hard and if I would never sort of I would never be able to read those things because they, I still find them awful to think about We've got some here, two here. If we go the f further one and then the, and then the fronter one. We write as I mean, I think, well, I think the reason I, I never written or never really like, thought about a series is because I don't tend to write a lot about procedure and you need, in order to, to um, as you said, you need, you need your sort of crime solver. And so I think it's going to, 
when you write a series that tends to be a detective or somebody who's going to encounter lots of crimes. So it, you tend to, to, that tends to push you towards the procedural side of things, which is not the side that I tend to write about so much. I think, I still think you could have amazing, compelling characters in um, series. Uh, one of my favorite writers of all time is Kate Atkinson, and she has that Jackson Brody series, and she creates the most wonderful characters in that. So I think it is, it's perfectly possible to do it. Uh, again, um, Tana French is somebody who, who manages to do that really well. Um, I think writing standalones is, it, it creates, it feels to me, and the people who write series now will like tell me I'm talking nonsense, it feels to me to be really hard because every time you come to it, you have, you're starting with nothing and you've got to create your world and create all your characters. And um, so... Whereas if you've got a series, at least you, your reader knows what world you're in and they know who your main guy is and you, they've got lots to anchor them in the story. Um, but certainly I feel that, that series can have just as many brilliant characters. It's just for me, I've never maybe picked the right vehicle for a series because it's not that I wouldn't want to do that. I, I, I do think it would be fun to do a series. But you do avoid the problem of adding a paragraph to explain everything from the previous 26 books. <laughs> True. I mean, some people do that so brilliantly. Some people manage to just sort of just drop in a few lines. So you sort of know, but they don't have to tell you everything. I think it's a real skill in writing a, a brilliant series, isn't that? Mm, definitely. Now, we had a front-up question. <laughs> You were saying that you didn't read crime fiction when you were writing it. Um, this is a question to you both. Um, what would your desert island book be? And if that's too hard, what would your desert island author be? Or who? I mean, that is really hard. I'm not, I'm not even going to try to book one of the author. <laughs> For me, it probably is someone like Pat Barker, um, who I, I find her books endlessly fascinating and re-readable, re and there's so much in them. It would be a toss-up for you, Kat, Pat Barker and Kate Atkinson, I reckon. Well, apart, obviously, from Paula, the second best <laughs> would be, I think, Don Winslow, because I could spend agonized, detailed time with the cartels in South America, and then refresh myself with the surfing novels, which are so funny, and also would help me as I was, like Tom Hanks, watching the waves coming in to pick that moment when I could get off the island. I think, I think that, that would be me. Now, we had a question over here. Yeah, there's one right, oh, one at the back and then a front of one. Uh, good morning. Um, as a fellow woman without children, I get very tired of reading about women who spend their entire lives longing for children or who get into the 30s and realise they've not got married and they've not had children and they better hurry up and get on with that. And I just wonder whether that is everyone's experience of reading or whether... I'm not reading widely enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think certainly, I think things are better than they used to be. I remember when 
We Need to Talk About Kevin came out, the Line on Fiverr novel, which is what, like 25 years ago? And I adored it because at last, here was a woman who really didn't want to have children, and then she had them, and it was a massive mistake. <laughs> Um, so I think there is a lot more ambivalence, but I mean, there possibly always has been, I don't know. Um, I feel there is more ambivalence. There is also, but yes, obviously it's a cultural, um, the expectation of women still remains that they will get married and have children, and there is still somewhere that kind of, either the sort of, well, what's wrong with you, um, question if you don't have children what's wrong with you either physically is something wrong with you or mentally is something wrong with you that you didn't want this um and all the idea yeah there's something lacking in you i think um i think in the in this novel they one of the characters talks about how you know if you have a woman who isn't married and doesn't have children you have to give her something else to love to humanize her give her a dog to make her you know whole um, a sense that you're not quite whole if you don't have those things. Um, but I think there are, I, I do think there is more nuance in the way this is, these questions are talked about. And I think that, well, particularly the, the idea that ha be getting married and having children so that solves all your problems is certainly not evident in crime novels. <laughs> um, I think getting married seems like a terrible idea if you read most psychological thrillers these days. So I think, yeah, I think it's less accepted now. And of course, Cyril Connell is the pram in the hall, which is the death of, of art. Of art, which I think is a bit unfair. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of mothers who write, but I know plenty of mothers who write who will say that that's, but, you know. I mean, it's, it makes life harder, certainly, when you've got to deal with children as well. But, it's um, nothing to do with the hormones and the brains, which... <laughs> It's just time. Just time management. Yeah. Time management. Now, the frontest question here, and then I fear we're about to have to wind up. When a, when a book is made into a film, 99% um, of people will say they prefer the book, and that's probably because we all read books differently. We, we imagine the characters our own way. How pleased were you with the girl on the train? <laughs> And um, why? I, I think I know the answer because it's worldwide, probably. But why wasn't it set in England? And mm. Did you? How much choice did you have about that? Well, I, I didn't have a choice, so don't kill me. I'm not. <laughs> no. Um. Okay. I actually do like the movie. I do. I like the movie a lot. I think the reader's experience is different, as you say. When you imagine a particular thing in your head. And the, the reason the girl on the train imagined a certain journey, and that was a, that, you know, well, actually a lot of people all think it was their commute. But anyway, a train trundling in past slightly shabby Victorian houses, and, and, the, and what they got was glamorous upstate New York and the Hudson and all that kind of thing. Um, I, this, I sold the rights to the, the book before it was even published. So it was sold on, a, um, on the proof. And it was one of the first questions they asked me was, would it be a deal breaker if they if they set it somewhere other than London? And I said, no, it's fine. I, I've, you know, I didn't even at that point you don't know that it's actually going to happen because lots of films get, uh, books get optioned and never get made. And I was, you know, I was thinking about other things at the time, and it never even occurred to me that it would become such a big deal. 
And I do actually think that the setting that they chose was very beautiful and very cinematic, and it worked on in a lot of ways. Um, everyone was much more beautiful and much more wealthy than the people I'd imagined, but there you go, that's Hollywood. Um, I totally get why readers were disappointed, though, that those readers who were wanted to see a particular thing. The great thing about a book is the book is still the book and it's still there, and if somebody else would like to adapt it and set it in London, go ahead. There is actually a Bollywood version which is set in London <laughs> that I'm not sure that that will necessarily satisfy readers either. Um, but yeah, the book remains the book. I think when you when you accept that you are selling the rights and you're not going to write the screenplay or direct or do whatever, you have to accept this is somebody else's interpretation of your story. It is going to be very different. I know that's hard for readers because I have read and loved books and gone to see adaptations and hated them. In fact, I think there's only probably one or two that I've really liked. So it is a difficult thing. You've just got to approach it um, you know, in a different way, I think. And there, unfortunately, we have hit time. Thank you for your really interesting <laughs> questions, for being such a wonderful audience, and most of all, thank you, Paula Hawkins. Thank you for listening to Hith Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.